me. It is an internal transformation that begins to work itself out. And so today, we come to that third phrase in that definition, and that is, it is by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. If you were to examine the life of the average believer, you would find that they are unplugged from the power source. When I read the New Testament and especially the book of Acts and discover how far we are from what God did in that early church, we are unplugged from the power source. There is more contrast to our lives in the New Testament than there is comparison. There seemingly is a void, a power vacuum, a power that is conspicuously absent from our lives. The power of the Holy Spirit permeated that early church. That power was not assigned to a denomination, nor to a doctrine, or to a ritual. It was infused on people who were submitted to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God gathers himself to the person of Jesus Christ and to those who honor the person of Jesus Christ. So we come to Acts 1.8, a verse that we're all familiar with, and yet very few of us may have ever experienced. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, <clears throat> and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. God was giving them a power to witness, a power to work, a power for the suffering that was going to come, and a power to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. It was a power given to them that they knew, but few of us know or experience. I want us to look at the historical background of this statement. For you'll remember that Jesus Christ had been talking about a coming kingdom, he had been talking about the kingdom of God on earth. His disciples had followed and had listened. But Jesus came to that time when he was tried, and found guilty of crimes he never committed, crucified, and all hope was gone at the cross. The disciples quit. They got discouraged. Peter went back to fishing. But three days later, Christ was resurrected. And with the resurrection came new hope. The kingdom that seemingly had died because the king had died was now sprung back into life because the king was alive. For 40 days, Jesus appeared to the disciples between the resurrection and the ascension. And then he comes in Acts chapter 1, and we see the coming ascension of Christ into heaven. And in verse 5, <clears throat> Jesus is saying, For John baptized with water... But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In verse 6, they ask a question. In verse 7, he answered them, and he gave them a twofold answer. He gave them a positive response and a negative response. The negative response was, it's not for you to know. Jesus were speaking in, in Albany, Georgia today. He would say, it's none of your cotton-picking business. 
Jesus was trying to say to the disciples, it's none of your business. It's none of your concern. It is not your responsibility to know when I'm going to restore Israel. That's not the problem. That's not the issue of the moment. The issue is, positively, you shall receive power. And when you receive that power, that power is going to equip you to do something, to be witnesses. So what I want you to focus on as my disciples and what he wants us to focus on is that we have received power to become witnesses. And the Spirit fell and the power came and they began to witness. They began in the very place where Jesus Christ was crucified. Not an easy place to begin. And then they went to Samaria where once they had wanted to walk around Samaria and avoid it because they hated the Samaritans, now they went to Samaria to share the gospel. They went to all the realms of the earth. They shared it with people regardless of race or creed or color. They shared it with the Gentiles, people that they had hated. Now they wanted them to know the same Christ that they knew. Jesus had infused them with power. And I think there are two principles that you learn out of this little section in the book of Acts. Number one is, God never calls us without equipping us. God never calls us without equipping us. Where God guides, where God leads, He provides the resources that are necessary. God never tells us to go do something that He has not equipped us by His Spirit with the resources we need to accomplish what He's called us to do. God does not send us out to be frustrated. God does not send us out to be defeated. God equips us so we can be victorious in what He has called us to do. Not only does God call and then equip, but secondly, God never asks you to do anything without reminding you first of what He has done for you. God never asks you to do anything without reminding you first of what He has done for you. You remember Romans 12, 1? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your lives, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. What did he do? He reminded them, first of all, of the mercies of God that had been extended toward them. Then he told them, he wanted them to present themselves as a living sacrifice. Why would anyone want to be uh, selfless instead of selfish? because you've been reminded of the mercies of God and that reminder makes you willing to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So when you and I receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God equips us to become like Jesus. The life of Christ is reproduced in our lives by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the thing that you need to understand is you can't get it any other way. The Holy Spirit has a copyright, a patent on the life of Christ. He reproduces it, and wherever He starts in your life, when you are saved, regardless at what age, where He is ultimately pointing, the ultimate conclusion that He's trying to come to in your life is He is trying to form you and I into the image of Jesus Christ. God has put the Holy Spirit into our lives to teach us how we can live like Jesus lived. So I want you to turn, if you would, for the next few moments to Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to find that the Spirit-filled life is not a lot of ecstatic utterances. It's not ecstasy of feelings. 
It's not emotions, although sometimes your emotions are involved in it. God never works apart from our emotions. But the Spirit-filled life is a very practical life. It is a life that can be observed and seen and understood. Notice that he says in Ephesians 5, 15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't know if Paul was a Baptist or not, but he used a funny analogy if he was. He said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You can see a comparison between the stimulus provided by the devil and the stimulus provided in the divine realm. He says, don't do this, do this. It is a command that you and I are to not be drunk with wine. It is also a command that we are to be filled with the Spirit. Now, why did Paul give that illustration? Why that analogy? Because the power of the Holy Spirit produces in us some unnatural responses. Responses that our flesh will not make. The same as alcohol produces in us unnatural responses. Now, you and I know nobody ever gets drunk driving by a liquor store. It's when you go in, you put your money on the counter, you buy the bottle, you take it out and you consume it, that's when you get drunk. And by the way, in the spiritual realm, no one ever gets filled with the Spirit by going to church. You do not become filled with the Spirit of God simply because you hang around with godly people. You can hang around with godly people and be carnal as the day is long. You do not become filled with the Spirit of God because you own a Bible or because you go to Sunday school or because you come to church. You and I are filled with the Spirit of God not when we rub shoulders it doesn't come by osmosis, but you and I are filled with the Spirit of God when we consume the Spirit of God into our lives and allow the Spirit to consume us. Amen. That's when we are Spirit-filled. Have you ever seen a man who was drunk? He thinks he can beat up everybody on the face of the earth. I mean, there's nobody too big. It doesn't matter if they've got a gun or a knife. He's going to take them on. In fact, he'll get louder about what he's going to do to people when he gets drunk. It's an unnatural response. That old boy in his right mind would never do some of the things that he does when he's drunk. But he gets drunk and he goes crazy and he starts making all kind of brash announcements. By the way, the Spirit does that in a different realm. When you and I are filled with the Spirit, we do not have a fear of men. We have the power of God residing in us. There's no fear in witnessing. There's a boldness. There's almost an audacity about our lives because the Spirit of God has taken over, and although we may be timid in our personality, God revives and puts alive something in our hearts that cannot be kept quiet regardless of the consequences. He says we are to be filled. J. Oswald Sanders said the Spirit-filled life is a life in which the Holy Spirit is granted absolute control by the yielded believer and is thus able to endue with power and produce his nine fruits in us. Now, how do we know if we're spirit-filled? Does that mean we run around and we jump over pews and we speak in languages that nobody understands? Paul is very practical. He has commanded them to be filled with the Spirit in verse 18. And from there until about verse 9 in chapter 6, he gives three evidences of the Spirit-filled life. 
The first one is in the personal realm, the personal arena, the personal aspect. And he says there are several characteristics that will mark your life if you're spirit-filled. Verse 15, he says you'll walk in wisdom. People always walk around saying, I don't know what to do. When you are walking in the Spirit, God gives you wisdom. You will be careful how you walk. You will walk wisely. Secondly, he says in verse 16, you'll make the most of your time. Spirit-filled people are good time managers because they understand that they only have one life. They don't get another chance at this. They don't get another option, so they discipline themselves. They become like Paul. They buffet their bodies and beat it in submission lest they could become a castaway. Spirit-filled people use their time wisely because they know that every day is an opportunity for Jesus Christ. Not only do they make the most of their time, but they'll know the will of God. How in the world do you know the will of God? The will of God is primarily a relationship, not a vocation. And when we are filled with the Spirit, we are walking in the will of God, and if we're doing anything that's outside that will, God's Spirit will tell us it's because it hinders the filling of the Spirit. It's walking in the will of God. But notice what he says in verse 19. <clears throat> he talks about our mouths being filled with praise, singing spiritual songs. When God's Spirit is filling your life, there's a song in your heart. There's a song that comes out, and, and singing in Scripture, especially if you study the battles, the spiritual battles of the Old Testament, singing in Scripture was always tied to one's relationship and condition of that relationship with the Lord. The psalmist said we could not sing the Lord's song in a strange land. Why? Because they had disobeyed God and they had been taken captive. They were slaves. But you read like in Exodus 15:1, Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Psalms 106, verse 12, Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. Praise and thanksgiving and joy and singing are an outgrowth of the Spirit-filled life. You go in some Baptist churches and it sounds like a wake, not a worship service. Why? Because the people don't understand the Spirit-filled life. Friends, when you're filled with the Spirit, the singing comes out of our hearts. It is a joy. It is an expression. It's not a drudgery. It's not just something in the bulletin. It's just not a song that we've got to go through. But it comes alive in our hearts and in our lives because God has put that song in us. I'm afraid that more than singing, most Baptist churches are characterized by murmuring. You know, that word murmuring even sounds bad, doesn't it? I mean, just... Say murmuring three times. Murmur, murmur, murmur. You ever walk down the hall of a church, found two or three people huddled over in the corner like this? You know what it sounds like? Murmur, murmur, murmur. And you know you're in trouble when you walk by them and they go, murmur, murmur, hey! And then you get by them and they murmur, 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 murmur. <clears throat> I mean, let's face it. One of the problems with the church in America today is we got too much griping and murmuring and not enough praising. One of the reasons why God's not blessing churches today is because God's people come to church and gripe to God about what a raw deal life has been for them and then they don't understand that Paul said, in everything give thanks. By the way, that's the next thing. He says in verse 20, always giving thanks. I discovered something. I got out every Greek 
concordance and New Testament and everything else I could find, I discovered the word always in the Greek translates, accurately translates always. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's always. In fact, way translates, translates it in increasing thanksgiving for all that he sends you. Well, I'm thankful when God gives me a check I didn't expect. No, for all that he sends you. Always giving thanks. That's a little harder. Isn't it? In fact, you can't do it apart from the Spirit-filled life. Now, let me ask you something. Walking in wisdom, using your time, singing songs, walking in the will of God, always giving thanks right now. Would you judge your spiritual life and how are you spiritually right now at this moment based on these five aspects that reveal themselves in our lives when we're filled with the Spirit? Are you at this moment in your life filled with the Holy Spirit of God? If not, why not? It's very simple. It's easy to discern. Either you and I are or we're not. You cannot counterfeit these. You can't produce these in your flesh. There's no way to counterfeit these kind of attitudes and these kind of relationships. It either happens or it doesn't. It's either true or it's not in your life at this moment right now. You and I, everybody in this room, is either filled or not filled personally. And you see, that's self-evaluation. That's not saying, boy, you know, there are some people in this church I know that are not spirit-filled. I didn't ask you that. I ask you, are you at this moment in your life filled with the Spirit of God based on these characteristics that Paul gave. But he didn't stop there. He started meddling, and he went to the home in verse 21 and stayed there to verse 4 of chapter 6. What he said was, if Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. Now, we got all kind of people that want to take this passage of Scripture and argue about superiority and equality and all of those issues. That's not the issue here. The issue is that when you and I are filled with the Spirit of God, we move from self-assertion to mutual submission. I have never met a woman who had any problem with submitting to her husband when her husband loved her like Christ loved the church. You see, it's not superiority, it's not the roles, it is a biblical position and realm in which God's Spirit works. That the wife is to submit to the husband and the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. You see, it is no put-down to say that a woman should submit to her husband. If it is, then it is a put-down to say that Christ's church should submit to Christ because that's the analogy he uses. Let me ask you, ladies, are you allowing your husband to be spiritually? You say, well, he's not spiritually, he won't be. Okay, forget that. Are you submitting to him? As Peter said, are you winning him to Jesus by quietly, reverently submitting to the Lord? Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Boy, then he goes to meddling. He starts talking about children. I was so glad when I got to the point where I thought that didn't apply to me anymore. I was so glad when I got beyond being a children and start being a parent, and then I found out I had to live this on another side of the coin. Fifteen years of doing youth work, I ran into a lot of young people who said, you know, I could live for Jesus if it wasn't for my parents. No. You see, the truth is, your response to your parents reveal that you're not living for Jesus. 
You see, he says, children, obey your parents. That is a result of walking in the will of God. That's a result of being filled with the Spirit. And the failure to honor and obey parents is a sign that you're not Spirit-filled. doesn't matter what, it doesn't say, honor your parents if they're saved. It says, obey, honor your parents. And the failure to obey parents is a sign that you are not walking in the Spirit, that your flesh and your desires and your wants and your goals mean more to you than being submitted to what God told you to do. In fact, some young people under the guise of Christianity have turned their parents off to Jesus instead of pointing them to Jesus because they've not done what Scripture says and God wouldn't honor that. You see, when I want to know where a young person is with the Lord, I don't go ask how they did at camp. I mean, anybody can get excited about Jesus at camp. I don't ask how they did on a retreat. If I want to know where a young person is with God, I'll call their mom and dad and say, are your children submitted to you? Are they honoring you? Are they obeying you? And if you're not, you're not spirit-filled. Boy, it's gotten awfully quiet in here. But friends, I want to tell you something. God's Word, which is without question inerrant, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul said, if your Christianity is real, it works at home. Anybody can put on a coat and tie and get their hair done and put on a dress and come and clean up and drive into the church parking lot and anybody can put on a game for a few hours on Sunday. But if you and I are spirit-filled when we walk in the door, it's still as real in the door as we tried to pretend it was when we were at church. It works at home. Let me ask you something. Based on your home life right now, are you filled with the Spirit? But he goes even further. And he talks about the business realm. Now, we don't have slaves and masters, but in verses 5 through 9, he gives some principles there, and he says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. In other words, you're doing it for Jesus. Doing the will of God from the heart. What was the will of God? To do what the masters told him to do. Notice that he says, With good will render service as to the Lord and not men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will be received back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now here's what he's saying. Let's bring it up to the 90s. What he's saying to employees is, Do you serve your company with good will? Do you want what's best? Do you do what you're asked to do? And in the last part of verse 5, he's saying, when you go to work, do you do what you do as unto the Lord? Or have you laid your religion aside, and do you gripe and complain about what your boss has asked you to do? Or do you do it as unto the Lord? In verse 6, are you sincere in your job? Are you trying to climb the corporate ladder? ready to step on, climb over, claw out anybody that gets in your way for a raise or a promotion. Are you doing what you do as unto the Lord? And then he goes to verse 9 and he talks about employers. Are you a godly employer? Are you a fair employer? Are you a just employer? I mean, do you try to take as many benefits as you can away from those who work for you so you can make more money? Or do you try to share with them because God has shared with you? Because God has given you the ability to make money, do you try to help those who work with you? Do you do the best for them? 
tell you one of the worst testimonies the church has is Christians, people who call themselves Christians and walk through the door of the church and they're bad, bad, bad as far as their reputation in the business community. And somebody sees them and says, boy, that guy says he's a Christian. Man, I never had lost people treat me like that in the business world. In fact, I can't even name on my hands a number of times I've had lost men say to me or Christian businessmen say to me, I would rather deal with a lost, godless pagan than to deal with a Christian in the business world. Now, friends, that is a mockery to the blood of Jesus Christ that you and I do not take Jesus Christ into the business world and live in there. Let me ask you something. In your business dealings, as a salesman, as a representative, in middle management, as an employee, as an employer, do you exemplify in those relationships the spirit-filled life? Is it different to do business with you? Do people sense the power and the presence of God? You say, man, you don't understand the business world. That's impossible. That's what I've been trying to tell you. It is impossible apart from the filling of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. It is difficult. It's impossible. You cannot live that kind of life apart from God's Holy Spirit indwelling you and empowering you. So I want you to look at now, if you would, at Galatians 5, 16 and 25. Galatians 5, 16 and 25. For there Paul talks about walking by the Spirit. <clears throat> this word walk is the same word in English, but it's two different words in the Greek. When he says in verse five, chapter 5, verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit, that you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. It's the same word in English, but two different words. The verse, uh, verse 16, when he says walk by the Spirit, it's the general word for walking around. As you go about life, as you walk around in this world, walk by the Spirit, and you will not by any means carry out the desire of the flesh. But in verse 25, he comes and says, walk by the Spirit. That is a more specific word. It's a military term. It is to stay in step or to toe the line. It is a term for walking in rank and in step with everything that's supposed to be moving in the right direction, in the right step. And, you know, what he's saying is, don't walk like Gomer Pyle when you walk with the Spirit. You know, I'm amazed at our military technology. I'm amazed that we can create a missile, a cruise missile that you can fire from a ship out in the ocean, and that missile can follow the terrain and go where, exactly where it needs to go, and it is so targeted and so well-equipped that it can split a field goal upright 500 miles away. And we got guys we pay a million dollars a year that can't kick a field goal 20 yards away. And we got these missiles, and they go right through a field goal 500 miles away. What the Holy Spirit does, ladies and gentlemen, is the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to stay on target. To follow the course, to stay in the direction of moving toward Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to walk in the Spirit, to walk in step. Now, how do you walk in the Spirit? You walk in the Spirit the same way you learn to walk as a baby. You know, a baby comes out, mom or dad holds the baby, and dad, usually mom's holding the baby, and dad's got the camera. I've noticed something about our pictures. I'm not in any of them. I'm always taking them. 
you know, mom's holding the baby, and the baby's sitting there and just kind of rocking back and forth. It's got that 47-pound diaper on it, you know, and the baby goes to take one step, and plop, down it goes. And the baby says, thank you, Lord, for padded diapers. Gets up and takes another step or two, and, and then you get down at the end of the living room, and you say, come to me, come to daddy, come to daddy, you know, and the dog comes and the cat comes. Everybody comes but the kid. But all of a sudden, you see those eyes light up, and that, that kid's like, ah, ah, and they just and drools coming everywhere, and you got on a start shirt, and you're about to die, but you, you know this is part of parenting, so you're doing it. So come on, come to me. He starts walking, and those little feet just to get to going, and that body kind of starts weaving, and before you know it, the feet get ahead of the body, or the body gets ahead of the feet, and bam, that kid hits the floor. And you know what those babies do. They sit there, and they look at you, and they go, Dad... I don't believe God's called me to walk. <laughs> I don't think that's my gift, and I'm not going to try to exercise that anymore. You see, walking is a series of steps, all of which, if you're not careful, could lead to a fall. So God's made a provision. It's found in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. God has made a provision for us when we walk and when we stumble. 1 John chapter 1, he's talking about the figurative term. He talks about walking. It's a way of life, how we are to continuously walk. It's a present tense word, continuous action. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, that's continually walking in the darkness, he's not talking there about an occasional slip-up. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, in verses 6 and 7, that term walk has to do with your habits, with your pattern, with your lifestyle. Here's what he's saying. Mark it down somewhere. The walk in the Spirit is not perfection as much as direction. God's not saying, oh, you're never going to sin. When you're walking in the Spirit, you'll never make another mistake. You'll never blow it. You'll never sin. What he's saying is, when you're walking and you blow it, verse 9 says, there's a remedy. There's a way to get up off the canvas. There's a way to get up off the floor. There's a way to pick yourself back up, and that is to confess the sin. You see, our consciousness of sin is in direct proportion to our sense of nearness to God. And he says, when you're walking and you fall, there's a remedy, not perfection, but direction. Where's your focus? Where's your direction? Are you focused on Christ? Are you filled with the Spirit? You know, I've come to the conclusion that the reason most people backslide is because it's just the easiest thing to do. Hosea said, my people are bent toward backsliding. Have you about decided in your life from failure after failure after failure that about the only doctrine you can live up to is total depravity? I mean, sometimes you think, man, that's the only, that's the only doctrine I've got a handle on is total depravity. God says there's an ability to walk. And yet backsliding and walking out of the Spirit and not in the Spirit is one of the best things that most of us do. 
If we were to do an honest evaluation of our life this morning, we would have to admit that for the majority of believers in this room watching by television, for the majority of believers, we spend our lives more outside of the will of God and out of being filled with the Spirit than we do being filled with the Spirit. You and I need to realize that God's plan for us is for us to walk in the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit. And when we do, there's an imparted to us a new consciousness of Jesus Christ. There's an awareness of power that's available to us that we don't know any other way. There's an awareness of how to fight the spiritual warfare and battle that we're involved in. There's a boldness, there's a preparation for the sacrifices that we're called on to make when we walk in the Spirit. So you say, okay, great. I'm defeated, I'm discouraged, I've run up the flag, I surrender. It's impossible. Congratulations. Now you're where God wants you. So how do you become filled with the Spirit? Three words. Three words. First of all, acknowledge. Acknowledge. Admit it to God. Acknowledge and admit to God that you are not walking in the Spirit that you're not being obedient to Ephesians 5.18, that you've been disobedient to that command. Acknowledge to him that you're frustrated. Acknowledge to him that you're not filled. Secondly, ask. Ask him to fulfill his word and his promise that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the only thing that keeps you from walking in the Spirit is sin. So ask him to forgive you. By the way, you never have to ask God to fill you. It happens when you obey God. I see people begging, Oh, God, please fill me with your Spirit. God's already told you how to be filled with the Spirit. It's in obedience to him. It's in response to him. So we acknowledge and we ask him to forgive us and then we accept it by faith. So, all right, I've acknowledged it, I've asked it, but I don't feel any different. He never said, be feelings with the Spirit. He said, be filled with the Spirit. The problem is, we think the Holy Spirit is equated with goosebumps. No, Accepting it by faith, which is what he talks about in Galatians, that we accept the Spirit by faith. When we accept it by faith, we know that that means that the first thing that's going to happen is going to change us. We're going to walk in wisdom. We're going to redeem the time. We're going to have a song in our heart. We're going to give thanks. It's going to change the way we relate. When we come home from work, it's going to change the way we relate in our relationships as husbands and wives and children and as young people. Our home is going to be different. It's going to change the way we do business at work. It may mean we go in and make some apologies to some people. that They've seen us come to church, and yet they hear us cuss a blue streak at work. Maybe they're going to see a difference in you because you've been filled with the Spirit. It won't mean that you're going to walk into work tomorrow and go, Oh, just praise Jesus, praise Jesus. I'm filled with Spirit, praise Jesus. It doesn't mean you're going to do that. It means you're going to walk in and say, You know what? I haven't been treating you folks right, and I'm going to change it starting today. That's being filled with the Spirit. Let me ask you, are you filled with the Spirit? Are you satisfied? Don't you ever just get sick and tired 
of struggling and existing and trying to hold on and gritting your teeth and making it through another day. Don't you want something different? Don't you want to understand what God promised to you and is available to you, not just to a select through few, not to just some denomination? Don't you want what the Word says you can have? Then accept that God will give it to you. When you acknowledge, ask forgiveness, and accept it may not feel different, but your attitude will be different. Your tongue will be different. Your actions and your reactions will be different. Your patience will be different. Your temper will be different. Why? Because you're continuously being filled with the Spirit. A.J. Gordon wrote a poem and said, O blessed paraclete, assert thine inward sway. My body make the temple meet for thy perpetual stay. Too long this house of thine by alien loves possessed has shut from thee its inner shrine, kept thee a slighted guest. Now rend, O spirit blessed, the veil of my poor heart. Enter thy long forbidden rest and nevermore depart. O to be filled with thee, I ask not aught beside, for all unholy guests must flee if thou in me abide. Heavenly Father, this morning the need of the hour is for us to be filled with the Spirit. As an act of our will in obedience, in response to the mercies of God, we need to be a church and individuals filled with the Spirit. Lord, during this invitation time, I pray that you would help us to be honest enough to evaluate our personal lives. I pray, Father, for young people. If there is a need to rectify a problem with a parent, I pray they'd do it even during this invitation. Lord, if there's a husband and a wife that need to get something straight, I pray that they would find this altar and on their knees before you submit to having a spirit-filled home. If there's a businessman who has not been straight and right and ethical and having integrity in his business dealings, I pray that this time would find him on his knees, submitted to you to be a godly businessman. Lord, if there are personal areas of our lives of disobedience, deal with those. Father, I ask you to be merciless in pointing out to us the things that are not of you. I ask you, Father, to shove us, if you have to, onto our knees before you to make us realize what we are doing when we are walking in the flesh instead of the Spirit. God, show us how much you hate the flesh and how much you love the walking in the Spirit. Move people down these aisles this moment, Father, I pray, who would be submitted to you and following you in church membership who had come to you to submit their lives to you as Lord and Savior and for the Spirit to fill them and to change their lives, who had come to make this a prayer altar, who had come to pray with a staff member, who would go across this auditorium to confess a wrong attitude or anything, any kind of murmuring that would hinder or interfere with the Spirit being Lord and Master and reigning in this place. Father, we come now submitted to you 
and ask that you hear us as we acknowledge our need even at this moment. The choir is going to sing. Our men are here. Would you stand quietly, heads bowed and eyes closed to your feet? And if you need to move toward this way, toward someone in this auditorium, you come right now. The choir.